Um, so the heat has seemed to have subsided a little bit, which is something I'm quite thankful for. Um, but uh, between, between heat waves, because there's apparently another one coming in the weather, it says there's another heat wave coming, so beware. Um, between these heat waves, it's kind of us, hard for us to remember what the, the dead of winter feels like. To us now, it seems like a whole, this whole other world to us. We're living in the world of the heat waves and not the world of, of winter. And so in order, in order to cool us off a little bit today, I thought I'd remind you, tell you a little bit about what happened during the ice storm of 1998. And in 1998, I was in elementary school, and we had just finished our two-week Christmas vacation. And so on January 4th, I went back to school. And I went to school for one day, and that night, it started to ice rain. And so on January 5th, there was no school, which I quite liked. <laughs> um, but the ice rain, it kept coming and falling and falling, and it built up to some four inches uh, in most places. And it knocked out power for over four million people. And it shut down everything. It didn't just shut down my school. It shut down businesses. Um, a lot of even hospitals were in bad situations. It shut down the bridges onto Montreal. It shut down the tunnels onto Montreal. Um, everything was shut down. Everything came to like a screeching, frozen standstill. And so for days, we huddled in our home. We huddled around the fireplace in the living room. And first, we burnt the logs that we had. And then we ran out of logs. So we started burning some of our books and some of our furniture. And we ran out of food. And so we had to leave. Um, and there was even at one point, the, the ice was so thick, four inches, like that's like that much. Um, I could, we could skate on our front lawn. So we were out skating on the front lawn and then there was like a big tree that fell down like feet from us. And we we're like, that's oh, too dangerous to skate outside. The ice is weighing down the trees. And so that, that ruined that. So it seemed like the whole world was frozen over, right? And that in the dead of winter, that the world of spring would never come. And what we're talking about today is the meeting of two worlds, the world of heaven and the world of earth. And to us, it seems like we're living in the world of the ice storm sometimes, and that spring will never come. But before we get into that, I'm going to just recap where we are. And so last week, I spoke on the Tower of Babel, and we called this event after what it was remembered by, the Tower of Confusion. And we saw that there, when we attempt to make a name for ourselves, when we prop ourselves up in arrogant pride and attempt to use God to our own selfish ends, that there's a sort of babel or disorder or confusion that ensues. And we saw that in order for something to be done about our pride and our selfishness, what I called the babel in your heart and in mine, God had to come down. And God came down at the cross and he came down again at Pentecost, and then from these events in our space and time, we no longer need to live in the confusion that ensued at Babel, but rather in the order and the peace and the joy of the events that took place in Jerusalem. And so this morning, we're gonna be unpacking more on one of those events that happened in Jerusalem, Pentecost. Pentecost is recorded in Acts 2, and Acts is a um, the book that we read this morning, is, it's a historical account of what happens in the early church from the point that Jesus goes up to heaven. And it's at Pentecost, it's in Acts 2, where these two worlds, the world of heaven and the world of earth, meet for good. And you could say it's the arrival of spring. 
So now in the Old Testament, we're going back, the temple had always been the place of intersection between heaven and earth. It was the only place, the only place where the holy presence of God was accessible to his people. And it functioned a lot like that fireplace did in our living room during the ice storm, right? It was a safe way to experience the glorious warmth of God's presence with his people. And because the Jewish people were given access to God, this knowledge of him, they were then held in higher responsibility. They were, like it says in Isaiah, to be a light to all the nations. And so this increased knowledge, it implied increased responsibility. They were given, as it were, a warm fireplace to provide warmth and comfort to a wintry world. And so the temple, it became this place of intersection between heaven, God's space, and earth, our space, human space. And the building itself captured that story in the Bible. It was filled with carvings and decorations and covering furniture. It symbolized God and humanity together, like it had once been in a garden. There were pomegranates carved into the walls. The stem of the candlestick had branches like a tree of life. So the temple was about the reality that God and men could be reconciled in close relationship. But Israel had become fixed on the image of the reality rather than the reality itself. Israel had become fixed on the image of the reality rather than the reality itself. Jesus, when talking to the religious leaders, he quotes from Isaiah, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Or another time, when a religious leader, he sums up the law, he says, you know, it it is written, right? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus tells him, yes, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But then he asks Jesus, and it says, wanting to justify himself. Who then is my neighbor? You see, the religious leader, he's so focused on defining who neighbor was, right? He wanted just to make sure that he's meeting those minimum criteria, right? He wants to justify himself. Am I meeting the minimum criteria? Focused on achieving the image of loving his neighbor rather than the reality of actually loving his neighbor. And this is, um, this is something that we do too, right? We become fixated on the image instead of the realities. And then we use this, we use this to skirt around our responsibility. Um, we could be focused here, a lot of us meet in city groups. We could become focused on our city group meeting, trying to just get the meeting itself, you know, checked off. Were there enough people? Check. Did it happen at Wednesday at 7.30? Check, right? And that we could do this, but not actually care about the reality that we are called to be a family of servants on mission for Jesus. Or here's, here's one for me, reading your Bible in the morning. That can become a sort of image thing, an image of a faithfulness, right? I'm, I'm being faithful, I'm reading my Bible. But am I actually communing with God during this time, right? See, if I miss my reading, I've noticed this, if I miss my reading, do I get down on myself? Well, like, then what does that mean? If, if I don't miss my reading, then I'm up on myself? And that means then who is it about in the first place? Was it about me and my image of being faithful? Or was it about God? And so 
When actions and rituals become the focus rather than the reality, it stops our hearts from changing. They become cold, hard, frozen, you could say, iced over towards God and others. And so here, the Jewish people, they had become fixated on the image of the temple over the reality that God wanted to be reconciled in close relationship with us through it. And so what happens at Pentecost, this passage that um, Brian started by reading, it's that the spirit of God has come down and he has filled us. Remember, the temple was like a fireplace in the ice storm, a safe way to experience God's glory. And here it is as if the fire has jumped out of the fireplace and its warmth and its glow is now filling the whole house and it's heralding the arrival of spring. And so with the event of Pentecost, all of our categories are blown open, right? So we're gonna look at this now. We're gonna get into the passage and we're gonna look at in more detail two major ideas. We're gonna look at the new temple that God has founded what I'll call the founding, and how it is being extended, the extending. So first, the new temple that God has founded. Put that up, the founding. And we'll start by reading our first verse. When the day of Pentecost had come, they, and that's referring to the apostles, they were all together in one place. Well, what is Pentecost? I'm so glad you asked. Pentecost, or Shavuot, is one of the three annual Jewish festivals in which thousands of pilgrims would descend on the city of Jerusalem, and they'd be bringing their offerings to the temple. And they came to celebrate the first fruits of the harvest, and they also came later to celebrate the giving of the law to Moses, the Torah. And because of uh, the Jews had been living away from Israel for so long, when they came together from all those different places where they've been living, they actually came with different cultures, and they came speaking uh, different languages. Uh, when I was growing up, every Thanksgiving we used to, um, you know, the whole family would pile in the van, all seven of us, and we'd drive down to Ohio to visit Grandma. Now, my mom had a large family. We were a large family. My mom also had a large family. She had six siblings. And each of those six siblings had, most of them had large families. And there's this thing that happens in large families, right? They, they develop their own subcultures. <laughs> and so Thanksgiving was this time when all of those family subcultures would come together and sort of like clash. But they were united around the fact that they were all one family. And, and there was good food. <laughs> Um, but Pentecost was sort of like a Thanksgiving on steroids, right? It's that they were all still one family, but, you know, they were all ethnically Jewish, but they were spread out around the whole known world with all their different languages and cultures. So you could say they're mono-ethnic, but multicultural. But then what happens? Acts 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And they saw, ooh, I'll just keep reading. And they saw what seemed tongues of fire that separated on them and came to rest on each of them. Now, this is strange. Can you imagine sitting around, you know, with your friends, and suddenly there's this, like, roar of wind, a gust of wind. 
actually says it's a violent wind. I was reading this passage on Monday and I was sitting outside and as, as I read this verse about the violent wind, I heard a crash and I looked up and a gust of wind, violent, had come and caught an umbrella that was in one of those tables and blew the whole thing over and smashed the glass top, right? Like the people sitting there were very distressed. And so that, that was like violent wind. So wind can have power, can be violent. And so you're sitting there with all your friends and suddenly this violent gust of wind comes and it fills the room. And here's where it starts to get strange, right? While they heard and they felt wind, they see tongues of fire. This is strange language, but I wanna say uh, it's intentional. Where else in scripture do we see fire and wind? Think of the times that God reveals himself fire coming down, consuming sacrifices, Moses at the burning bush, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Let's look at that passage in Exodus. Can you throw it forward? Thanks. And on the morning of the third day, there were thunder and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And so here we see one of those cases where there's the crazy weather, the thunder and the lightnings, and there's noise that sounds like trumpet, and the Lord God comes down in fire. And this is a sign that the presence of God is here. So why is God's glory represented like a fire? I'll just throw a few of the words we associate with fire out there. It's beautiful. It's powerful, it's life-giving, it's consuming, God's glory, right? And so God is in the business of starting something here, something new here, and he comes down in all his glory, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And it says of all of them, back to our passage, were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And by tongues here, it means languages, sort of like we use the the phrase like, oh, he speaks his mother tongue. Well, that's referring to a language. So Luke is telling us that the apostles were, they were miraculously able to speak in other languages, languages that they didn't know. And it continues on. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each of one was hearing them speak in their own language. And then Luke the historian, he goes on to record 15 different places that these people are from. And they were amazed and they were astonished. Are not these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in our own language? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and all were amazed and perplexed saying one to another, what, what does this mean? And now if you were there and you've had this fire and the wind and you're, ah, what does this mean, right? <laughs> I would ask the same question. What does God's presence coming down have to do with people hearing about God in their own language? Well, we already saw the first reason for this last week, right? That it's a reversal of the confusion of language that happened at Babel. That God was ensuring that every person could hear the message of Jesus in their own tongue. But there's something more. And what's more is that God is founding something new that is accessible. Luke, like, he went out of his way here, it seems, like, to list 15 languages. Was it because he was really into geography? Like, he's a buff, you know, like a geography buff? <laughs> no. 
like he could have he could have listed more places. The Jews have dispersed quite far, more than just 15 places. But what he does is he actually shows all the different points on the compass. And just every direction is represented here. And the, so the Jewish people, they had been spread out all over the known world because of persecution. And this list of exiles actually becomes similar and overlaps a list that we find in Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 11, God is promising to bring back a remnant to Jerusalem. And now at Pentecost, here we have this remnant of Jews of different languages brought back from all over the known world. And God is giving his people a chance to hear and understand in their own language the good news. The good news that God is founding something new. Well, what new? Well, in the Old Testament, when the temple was founded, it says the glory of God would light up and fill that fireplace of meeting between heaven and earth. Um, Look at this account when it a temple is founded. When the temple of the Lord was, then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. And so, do you see what we have here, right? We have the crazy weather, and we have the fire, and now we have the filling. What Luke is describing here, without actually using the term temple or sacred itself, right? But Luke is describing behind the text, all the elements of it are showing the founding of the new temple of God. But it's not the founding of a a new building, right? It's the founding of a new people to be the temple. Jesus said that after he left, he would send the spirit, and now the spirit has come. And the spirit has come to establish the people of God as the temple of God. And now we hear this and we just absorb it. But for the first listeners, this was a shocking statement. When I say the word temple, um, I'm not really sure what sort of pictures come into your mind. Um, But here's one of the pictures that comes into mind. I'll give you kind of two different ones. Um, When I was at McGill, I had a friend who was Sikh and we used to get into conversations a lot about faith. And at one point, we decided we were going to sort of do an exchange. I would go to Sikh temple with him, and he would come to church with me. And one of the things I was surprised to, to find out, that the temple was really the center of his community. It was where he had learned a lot of his languages, where he had learned a lot of the teachings. Um, it was the center of his community life, of his culture. It was where he picked up girls. <laughs> It's, it was hard for me, right, as like a Westerner to imagine how central and important this one building could be. Another example, maybe better for some of us, and this is a poor example, would be sort of like a combination of the Vimy Ridge Memorial and Parliament Block. Vimy Ridge Memorial being sort of the history of our nation, a point that really defined us, and Parliament Block being the government of our nation, the governance, it's, it's culture. And so if you sort of combine those two comments, it'd be like saying, you all are parliament block. They're like, what? Like, it's, it's like in Ottawa. And the Jews, like they're listening, you all are the, t-. it's right here. <laughs> it's still standing, right? So your body, it's saying, your body is like the parliament block and everything that parliament block represents is now you. And the parliament lock that you see, it's actually now obsolete, been made by God obsolete. And so now we can see how shocking this would be to us. And so what does the tongues of fire coming and dividing and filling the apostles mean? 
It means that the presence of God has now been made accessible in a new and radical way, that he has founded a new temple of worship. And so God has founded a new temple, the people of God, but what is being extended? And so this is my second point. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. There's sort of two responses that we can have here, right? Some mock and some are amazed. And you too might have this reaction, right? You're like, this is crazy, people speaking in all these different languages. Or you might just be perplexed and you want to know more. And so to the, both these reactions, Peter stands up and says, listen, these people are not drunk. It's only three in the day. <laughs> and, uh, but this was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in these last days, it shall be. God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And by all flesh, he's saying all people. He's saying, it, it, it's like before when we had that ethnically Jewish Thanksgiving, it's now open to all ethnicities to attend. Both the Jew and the non-Jew, they're invited to be a part of this temple. And it's not only this, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams even on your male servants and your female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. So there is male and female. There is old and young. There is slave and free. There is ethnically Jewish and not, right? This is the most radical and inclusive community ever that is being extended. And Peter is explaining that God is pouring out the spirit. This, this firestorm, this speaking in other languages, right, is a fulfillment of the prophetic expectation of the Jewish people. And so Jesus said he would send his spirit. And now as a risen and exalted Lord and King, in his authority, he has done just that. The temple has been founded on Jesus. He's the cornerstone that it's founded on, built out of. And now it is being extended to the nations of the world. And Peter's explanation for the hearers goes on. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did to you through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Wait. I want you to hear something here. especially if you're skeptical. Um, remember, Acts is a historical record of the early church, right? So it needs to be treated as such. So I'm gonna reread this slightly differently for us. Men of Montreal, people of Montreal, hear these words. Jesus of Vaudreuil, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and miraculous signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves no. Do you see what sort of argument that Peter is making here? He's standing up in front of a crowd of thousands of people in the very city that Jesus was just 10 days before, saying Jesus did miracles and signs and wonders. You think he could make this up in front of all those people? No. Signs and wonders? Yes. Everybody knew it. Jesus had done those. You see, this isn't just some sort of quaint religious imagery. This is a historical reality that you have to wrestle with. And he goes on, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
Peter is explaining here what happened to Jesus, that his crucifixion and his resurrection, it undergirds the whole of Pentecost. This founding of the people of God is the new temple. But Peter isn't just making it up. He got it from Jesus himself. Jesus said in John's gospel, I'm missing a verse there. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And then here's the reply on the screen. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build the temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. See, Jesus claimed that he was the temple in his body, right? And if Jesus is the temple, then Jesus is the one to whom the whole building and its imagery pointed to all along. The building had served its purpose. And now the true temple was here in Jesus. And Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again. Why? Because through his death and resurrection, a new temple can be founded. But why did Jesus have to die in order to found a new temple? Because the temple is a holy space and we are not. See, the reality is that often our hearts are like the front lawn, my front lawn during the ice storm, right? Frozen over. And what we try and do is we try and skirt around the responsibility that God has placed in us. One of the examples I started earlier is that maybe we try and avoid the historical reality of who Jesus was, right? We try and smooth them over with a veneer of just, it's just religious imagery. And I've had people tell it to me like this, right? Jesus was just a great moral teacher. He wasn't God, which if you think about it, might be a way of skirting around the responsibility, of avoiding his authority. But the reality is God did not leave that option open to us. C.S. Lewis says it like this. I am here trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman is something worth. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us. He did not intend to. And so what C.S. Lewis says here so well is we can't just smooth Jesus over with this quaint religious moral teacher talk, but rather we have to wrestle with the historical reality of who he claimed to be. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be heaven on earth. He claimed that his body was the temple. And for this, he was crucified on a Roman cross. And he did this for you and he did this for me. See, when Israel failed to be the light of the world, Jesus said that he was the light of the world. And unlike Israel, and let's be honest, unlike you and I, when we skirt around our responsibilities, Jesus fully took 
responsibility. Speaking about the cross, he said, let this cup, the cross, let this cup pass from me, but not your will, but not my will, but yours, Father, be done. And so he didn't skirt around responsibility. He did this for you and for me. And when all we did was try and avoid responsibility for our sin, Jesus bore and took full responsibility for our sin. And when we were unholy, he was holy for us. But death couldn't hold him, right? Why? Because death was the most powerful weapon that evil could exert on Jesus, and it exhausted its power. Why? Why? Because Jesus was holy, and he was fully responsible, so he unbound it of its power. And now risen to life in a new body, Jesus can extend freedom to us from our sin. And he can extend his holiness to us, to our unholiness. And so let Jesus' work be applied for you. Your hearts can be made holy. They can be made a temple to God. Will you let him do this? Will you let him bear your wrong? And if you will, he will come in and he will live in you by his spirit, setting you aflame for him. Peter continues, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter says to them to repent, to repent and to be baptized. To repent means to turn from yourself. It means to turn from your sin and to turn towards God. To be baptized means to enter into the new identity that is formed in Jesus Christ, to be part of the new temple that he is building, a temple of glorious worship. And this is why we're here this morning, right? This is why I'm here. I've had to repent of the ways that I've tried to skirt around my responsibility, that I've tried to jump ship, right, on God's purposes for my life. And the reality is that's really hard. It's really hard to admit we're wrong. It's really hard to admit the ways that we have tried to jump ship on the responsibilities that God has given us. And what God had to do was he had to melt. I had to hand that over and he had to melt my hardened heart. He had to melt my frozen heart and then set it aflame for him. But when he does this, when when you let God do this to you, he immerses you. He baptizes you with his spirit and he fills you with fire to go out into the world and be the temple of God for him. And he's calling us to do that. He's calling us to, be, to repent and be baptized. And when you do, God's holiness now lives in you. He puts his spirit in you. It says the reaction to this on this day was that 3,000 people believed. 3,000 people believed in Jesus, that he was Messiah and King. It wasn't just the temple being founded, it was the temple being extended. And one more thing, this temple was more glorious than ever before. Remember the design of the Jewish temple, its, uh, its furniture, its curtains, its carvings, they always pointed towards a day when the glory of God would fill the whole cosmos. Right, that both heaven and earth, rather than a physical house in a particular geographical place, would be filled with the glory of the Lord. And so you see, church, in the newly founded temple of God, our greatest task is to be so wonderfully filled with the presence of God that we expand and fill the earth with the glory of his presence until we await the day that he returns. 
We look forward to the day when God comes down and completes it, right? The dead of winter has passed. Spring has come, and we await the sun. But how do we live as the temple? There are a number of things that could be said here, um, but I'll just say two. Burn. Paul said, be fervent in spirit. Be ablaze. Burn. Be ablaze in spirit. And when I read the book of Acts, when, when, when I read these accounts about people speaking miraculously in other languages and 3,000 people meeting Jesus, this is what the spirit can do. This is what the spirit can do through me. This is what the spirit can do through you. God's glory wants to live in you, right? Have you been made holy in him? Have you allowed him to purify you? Have you repented, allowed for his Holy Spirit to come in and to fill you? Forgiveness of sins, and then receiving the Holy Spirit, Peter talks about. And if you've done this, if you receive the Holy Spirit, you have received the Holy Spirit. You have, if you have repented of your sins, you have received the Holy Spirit. But what God wants to do is he, want you, he wants you to fully live out that reality in Christ now. But are we seeking it? See, in order to want, in order to have more of the Spirit, we have to want more of the Spirit. In order to have more of the Spirit, we have to want more of the Spirit. Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open unto you. How much more will the Father give you the gift of the Holy Spirit? He delights to give more. He wants to give more. But do you yearn for more in your life? Do you yearn to be set ablaze by God, to be filled with his glory and be extending it outwards into this world as emissaries for him? Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink and I will make him belly flow, out of his belly flow rivers of living water. Are you thirsty for him? He can flow out of you like those living waters. You can burn like a firebrand for King Jesus. Boldly, publicly, a life that causes some to mock and some to be amazed. And we exercise rule. We exercise our responsibility by ruling. The, Jesus, the, rule, <laughs> the rule that Jesus in heaven exercises on earth is through spirit-filled people. The rule that Jesus in heaven exercises on earth is through spirit-filled people. And I'm not, when I say this, talking about setting up a sort of theocracy, right? But what I'm talking about is the sort of rule that God intended right from the beginning, from that very first sort of organic temple that he set up in Eden. And the picture of rule that we are given here is gardening. Adam, called to rule by extending the beauty and the goodness of the garden outward. And so Jesus has given his people, the church, the authority to carry things out on earth as it is in heaven. And so what does this mean for us? It means that we work diligently with boldness, extending and communicating the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of the gospel into every sphere of our life. This means... For example, standing up for truth in academia, even when it feels like the whole tide is against you, all your peers are against you. This could be fighting to free millions of girls caught in 
slave trafficking. This could be telling your boss that you won't just slip this one under the table, but you'll stand up for what's right. There are many ways with which we can extend the rule and the reign of Jesus into our lives. Um, some of you might remember, <clears throat> I'll close with this story, my buddy uh, Dan, who visited here in January. And Dan is part of a group of uh, Christians who share Jesus around the world. And they do it sometimes in hostile places. And the way that they communicate, they share their stories, is through WhatsApp. And so Dan was over, I'm like, what is, you know, what is the coolest story, video, whatever that you have of sharing Jesus around the world? He's like, terrorists bending the knee to Jesus. I was like, what? He's like, yeah. So it turns out that one of our former professors, and a, really, he used to go away a lot, but he was, it turns out he was going away to Pakistan because he loved to share Jesus uh, in Pakistan. And there in Pakistan, one of his friends that also works in the ministry uh, did his PhD in Islamic studies at Islamabad University. And he did that specifically. It's a training you would do to become an imam. He did it specifically to reach people for Jesus. And so they had worked together for a while to organize an event. Um, uh, my former professor in this contact in the city. And they had to be super careful about security because um, some of their fellow Christians had actually been killed for the name of Jesus in that, in that country, in that place. And so this is a place that's hostile to the good news of Jesus. Um, but they organized this outreach. And when the day came, um, they, uh, my former professor and this man, they went to go to where the event was being held. And when they got there, uh, there was a certain amount of confusion. And there was people coming in and they're like, is this where it's supposed to be? And the people are saying, no, it's not. But they're like, yes, I thought this is where it was supposed to be. And as they were in this confusion, a bomb went off next door. And they went next door. And that was actually the venue that they were supposed to be in. And the venue had been bombed by local terrorists who knew that the event had found out it was going to happen. And they were there and they were planting flags on the rubble as the fire trucks were coming and crowds were forming. And then in this moment, they wondered, what do we do? What do we do? And so they prayed, they asked God. And they said that the spirit of God filled them with boldness. And we will go forward with this event. We will proclaim Jesus, his life, his peace over this people. And so they went ahead and they said, well, hold it next door. And so next door, they set up this event and people began to come in. And terrorists, literally they saw the terrorists who had done that come into the venue and sit down, guns in hand. And they began to preach Jesus, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And the video that Daniel showed me is a crowd of people coming forward yelling, Isa, Isa. Terrorists included. And this is what it looks like to exercise the rule of God in this world, right? The boldness of knowing that Jesus already reigns. It's his rule that we're carrying out. He says, all authority, Jesus said, all authority on heaven and on earth is given me. And so we carry out his rule with boldness and with power and people are transformed. Terrorists, now peaceful, loving Christians willing to lay down their lives for people who were once their enemies. This is being filled with the spirit. This is being set afire with the boldness that Jesus gives you. And this is exercising his rule in our world. See, God doesn't want us to just be complacent. God doesn't want us to just privatize our faith. Our faith is public, like the temple was the center of Jerusalem. You are the temple. And you are to be a public witness of the glory of God until this whole cosmos is filled with God's glory. 
This is what I want for you. And so this is what I want to pray for you this morning. And so as we close in prayer, I want you, if you feel your heart stirred, if you feel that you are being caught and drawn in by the presence of Jesus in this room, I want you to pray with me. If you haven't received Jesus, receive Jesus. If you want to enter deeper into the fullness of the reality and the power and the boldness of Jesus, his spirit, then pray with me as well. Father, I thank you that you are here with us. I thank you that your presence is life and it is power, and you fill us. I'm sorry for the ways that I've tried to skirt responsibility. I'm sorry for the ways that I've tried to do things on my own, be my own person. Thank you for the way that you have come and you have set me free. Please fill me with your spirit. Help me to live for you. And I pray, God, that I wouldn't settle for less, but that I would live out the full reality of what you have won for me on the cross that you call us to be filled with the Spirit, to be set ablaze for you. Fill me with your Spirit, God, in Jesus' name, to be ablaze for you. And this we pray.